Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I was a young Christian. I had not been following Jesus too many years when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker hit, uh, hit the airwaves with their televangelist uh, ministry there in Heritage, North Carolina. Jim um, was a prosperity preacher, promising that God desired everyone to be wealthy and to have no problems. And uh, he was selling timeshares in this thing called Heritage. But just after I started here as as a lead pastor many years ago, all of that came tumbling down, and Jim Baker was uh, accused and uh, convicted of mail fraud, of wire fraud, conspiracy. He used some of the money his folks had sent him to cover up an affair. He was not building all the things that people were sending money for him to do. He went to prison for five years. I told this story not too long ago, but I wanted to tell it again because it's such a, it's such a runway into what we want to talk about this morning. But this is what Jim Baker said after he was out of prison when Billy Graham died. When I was in that prison, the lowest day possibly of my life up to that moment, I was sick. I had pneumonia. I'd cleaned toilets all morning. In fact, I'd cleaned toilets for five years. Every day, I would not lay in my bed, even though I felt like I was dying. That morning, I cleaned toilets, he said. I had my shoes that have the holes in the toes. They were my toilet cleaning shoes. The guard called me. They said, Baker, they never called me Jim. Baker, you have a visitor. And I said, it's not visiting day. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know what this was all about. He said, you need to go to the warden's office right now. And I said, oh, God, help me. I'm in trouble. I had on my old clothes, I had my uh, wrinkled clothes, toilet cleaning clothes on, not my visiting family clothes. There were two sets of clothes that I had. I looked like a man that had been sleeping under a bridge for years, so I walked over to the warden's office across the prison yard, and I stood out there. The former televangelist, Jim Baker, said, somebody came out of the office, and they said, Baker, you have a visitor. And I said, it's not visiting day. Who is it? And he said, they haven't told you? It's Billy Graham. Billy Graham is here. He said, do you want to see him? I looked down at my shoes, my toes hanging out, my wrinkled clothes. I was sick. I looked bad, but I saw him. I walked into the room and the warden was there. Assistant wardens were there. Everybody wanted to see Billy Graham. But when I walked in, all I could see is his six foot something, this six foot something man. And I'm about five something guy. And I walked in and he threw his arms around me, Baker said tearfully. And he held me and he said, Jim, I love you. How could anybody love me looking like that? I had been disgraced to the world. A day before, I heard someone say that Billy Graham was voted one of the top three most respected men in the world. And here he is in my prison, holding me in his arms, telling me that he loved me, and I didn't feel very much loved anymore. Baker, as he told the story, began to cry. He said, Billy Graham came into my prison when I was there, and he wrapped his arms around me when I was a mess. Billy Graham walked in and threw his arms around me and said, Jim, I love you. If you know more about that story, you'll also know that uh, when he was released from prison, Billy Graham took Jim Baker in, gave him a place to live for three years, gave him a car to use, and they had him in their church every Sunday sitting with beside Ruth Graham Bell. I start with that story this morning because I want to talk to us this morning about loving one another. That's what's next in the text. I told you last week that I think we make the Christian life way more difficult than it has to be. I think the Christian life is really 
can be distilled into two things that Jesus said. We saw it on the video. It is loving God and it's loving others. I think that's what the Christian life is. And and again, like I said last week, I don't want to oversimplify this, but I think we make it too complicated and we miss the heart of what it means to follow God, which is to love him, to love him and to love others. I'm convinced, I really am convinced, listen, that what I'm going to share with us this morning is probably the most needed and practical talk we ever hear. We've heard it before. You've heard it from me. You're going to hear it again this morning. But I think it's one of the most practical, needed things that we need to say over and over and over again. In our study of John, we've come to the place where Jesus is with his followers. It's the last night of his life. Uh, before his crucifixion and death the next day. And he says to them, I am giving you a new command tonight. This is not anything that he hasn't been telling them for the last three years. But tonight, he's going to make it definitive. He's going to make it absolutely crystal clear. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, John chapter 13, verse 31, just, uh, just four verses, I believe. When he left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Judas has left the room. You remember last week, he leaves. Jesus says, go and do what you're going to do, and he leaves. And now Jesus is just with his leaven that are left, and he says to them, I'm about to be glorified. And what he's talking about, he's talking about his death and resurrection, and then ultimately, 40 days later, his return to heaven. So when he says, I'm about to be glorified, that God is about to glorify me, that's what he's referring to. He's talking about his death. And he basically says, now that Judas has left the room, the the countdown has begun. It has it is, it is started. And I'm going to be with you just a little while longer. In fact, he's only going to be with them for a few more hours, actually, before he'll be taken away and then crucified. And of course, he'll be with them more during those next 40 days. But I think he's referencing when he says, I'm only going to be with you for a, a, few, a little bit longer. He's talking about that night. And in this context, he says, I want to give you a new commandment. I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. Now, this commandment, we cannot... We cannot minimize it. We should not miss its importance. John, the same writer, would elaborate on it later in another letter that he writes. This is what he says. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son, i.e. Jesus, into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. The apostle Peter would say something like this in his first letter, in chapter four, verse eight. He says, the most important thing of all is that we continue to show deep love for one another. It's a new commandment to them that night. 
Maybe in its specificity, it's a new commandment, but it is not an optional commandment for us. This, I think, is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be someone who follows Jesus. We must love one another. Now, in the Bible, love is always a verb. It's always Uh, It's not a feeling as far as the the love that we're talking about, the love that God's talking about here. It's about preferring other people as more important than ourselves. It's about giving so as to bless other people. That's what the word always means. Now, Jesus tells us to follow his example. He says, this is the example that I'm leaving you. You you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, there's going to be this positive consequence if you will do this. If you will love one another like I have loved you, the positive consequence is that other people, when they see you, they'll see the family resemblance and they'll see that you belong to me. They'll see you're part of my kingdom. They'll see that you are like me. Now, many people claim to know and love Jesus, but the evidence of whether we know and love Jesus is whether we love practically and in reality. That that is the evidence of whether I know Christ. It, It is that I am willing to love. So a minute ago, just a second ago, I told you love is a verb. Let me ask you this question. It's kind of rhetorical, maybe for you just to consider in your own mind, but what will love in action look like? So remember, this is the commandment. I give you a new commandment. Love one another, as I have loved you. Here's my question. What would that look like? What would you see in me or what would I see in you if you were loving people the way Jesus loved us? What would you see in each other? What do you think would be the significant demonstrations of those things? It's been quite a few years ago, but I actually asked you that question. You probably won't remember this. Many of you weren't even here, but I asked that question of you, and I, and I distilled your answers that you gave me back then about what it would look like if, if you were practically loving like Jesus loved. I distilled your answers into five, and, and I'm going to share those five with you. Now, so from here on out, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say to us, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. I want, what I want to do in the rest of the time is I want to tell you what it looks like if you're going to live that out, okay? And I'm going to use what you told me. But, but having said that, I believe what you told me is what the Bible says, okay? Because you are mature Christians, right? You're able to recognize what it means and looks like to love. So the things that you shared are, are thoroughly biblical. This is not an exhaustive list. You could find more things. You could, you could probably... Uh, Maybe double this list. I don't know. But here's five things that when I distilled your questions, your answers down, this is what came out. So here's the first one. When we love like Jesus loved, we demonstrate love by caring for one another's needs consistently, even to our own hurt. So when I love like Jesus loves, it means that I am committed to meeting the things that you need in your life as best I can, even to my own loss, even to my own detriment. Now, some of you will know this because you've known me for so many years, but some of the verses that I have considered foundational for my own personal life come from Philippians chapter 2. And, and really, the, the foundation of them is the example of my Savior in 5 through 8. But the verses that I have sought to really be kind of a 
directive in my own life have been Philippians 2 through 4. Let me read them. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, I'm not saying I've done that well, but I am saying that that has, has been this kind of marker in my life. It's been the GPS, if you would, of how I've wanted to live. I've wanted to live my life so that I am prioritizing others rather than myself. Now, all of us are going to hurt from time to time. All of us are going to, something's going to happen to us and, and we're going to be you know, we're, we're going to suffer and we're going to have trials and, and, and burdens. And so before I, I really talk about us being, caring for one another's needs, let me just say one other thing kind of foundational to that. God is the one who's ultimately going to meet our needs. God's the ultimate one who's going to take care of us when, when all the world around us is crashing. The, the psalmist says, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burdens, the God who is our salvation. This morning, we were studying Psalm 23, and in the, in the psalm, it's there, David says, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, now listen, he says, you are what? With me. You are with me. So here's what the Lord's promising. When Jesus went back to heaven, he said, I'm sending you the comforter. I'm, I'm sending you the one who's going to be with you. And, and he's never going to leave you alone. You're not, you never go through anything. You never struggle any struggle that I promise you. God is not there with you to strengthen you and to guide you and to help you. You are not alone. It may feel like it because if you get your eyes off of him, you may think you're all alone because maybe everybody else is not step to the plate and done what they're supposed to do, and you might feel like you're alone, but you're not alone. Now, having said that, the most practical way that God bears up my burdens is he sends you to help shoulder and carry my load. And he sends me to carry your load. And so in Galatians, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. This is what love does. So, so you following me? I'm trying to share with you what does it look like if we're going to love one another like Jesus loves us. It means we're going to carry each other. We're going to help one another when, our, when we're burdened down and we're suffering. And, and I can meet your needs. I, I'm there for that. That's what I'm supposed to be. I don't just mean me. When I say I, I mean you. I mean all of us. So what, what does that look like practically? Let me, get this, let me take it down another level to make it even more practical. It means I give my resources, my money, when you have lack. I mean, the Bible says that, everybody. It says, my surplus is to meet your lack. Your surplus is to meet my lack. I'm, I'm just using you and not me and me, me and you, right? But you know what I'm saying, right? So, so Steve, your surplus is to, meet, is to meet Glenn's lack. Not that there ever would be, but you know what I'm saying, right? Our surplus meets the lack of our friends and brothers. Now, now, around us, can I say this? Let's be honest. We don't have a lot of lack. Every once in a while we have lack. We don't have a lot of lack. But, but, but listen, don't just think of my surplus meeting your lack as being just within these walls. I mean, it needs to start there and it definitely needs to be there. But our family is so much bigger than just this group of people, everyone. 
Our family includes brothers and sisters around the world who do have lack. Uh, you, know, you know from all I've shared with you over the years that I struggle with that balance of my surplus and your lack. I struggle with that. But here, here's how it, my resources meet your lack. I am to gladly give of my time when others need my help. You know, the, the, the most precious thing that you have, the most precious gift you have is time because you, you can't add to it. You can add to your money, but you really can't add to your time. You can maybe, you can improve your health, but you know you can't add to your time. When you die, you die, that's it. You only have a certain amount of days. And, and so giving our time, that's a huge thing. But that's what I'm called to do, to give my time, to prefer your needs is more important than my leisure time. Giving emotional support when others grieve. I only just use the word grieve. It's not just grieve when people are hurting for whatever reason. You know, I've told you all this before, but I can't, let me, just, let me just step into it because I need to. You know, when Shep died, you guys were such an emotional support for Ann and me. And I think a part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Ann and I have served with you for all these years, so I recognize that relationship. But in the same way you supported me, that's how we need to support every one of us in here when, when, we're, when we go through something that's beating us down. And it doesn't just have to be this. It, it can be something at home. It can be my marriage is failing. It can be my children are struggling. You know, whatever it might be. We, you know, this is what it means to love. I step in and I help carry your burdens however I can. And can I say that this has to be something that we sacrifice to do I see this all the time, and in, in, in this, if this fits you, I'm sorry, but you need to repent. But we think that we do something one time, and that constitutes loving, right? I'm glad you loved one time, but this is not a one-shot one thing, everyone. This is a way of life. I need to be meeting needs all my life. I need to be meeting your needs all my life. You need to be meeting my, you need to be helping me. I need to be helping you. We need to be helping one another. It's a way of life. It's not just a one-time thing. We do our one thing. We pat ourselves on the back and we say, well, wasn't that so loving of me? And I'm glad you did it the one time, but it's not, this is a way of life. Here's a picture of a hairstylist who takes his talent down to, to the poor section where he lives and he cuts people's hairs and, and hair and gives them these transformative haircuts to people who would never have them if he didn't go down there and do that. Here's an IHOP server by the name of Joe Thomas. And uh, Joe watched this couple come in a lot to their IHOP and uh, the wife had Huntington's disease and he would watch the, the husband feed the wife. And I don't know why he did this, but Joe decided that one day he would help. And he sat down and fed the wife so that the husband and wife could, uh, could eat together. Here's, a, here's another story, and I quote it. Leaving a store, I returned to my car only to find that I'd locked my keys and cell phone inside. A teenager riding his bike saw me kick a tire in frustration and, uh, and asked, what's wrong? I explained my situation. But even if I could call my wife, I said, she can't bring me my car key since we only have one car. He handed me his cell phone. Call your wife and tell her I'm coming to get the key. That seven miles round trip, I said, don't worry about it. An hour later, he returned with the key. I offered him some money, but he refused. Let's just say I needed the exercise, he said. And with that, he wrote off. No idea whether the three pictures that I've set up there for you, I have no idea whether those three people are Christians or not, whether they're following Jesus. But this I do know. They look like what we're supposed to look like. They represent, if you would, the kind of 
loving people that we are to be caring for one another's needs. Number two, we demonstrate this, this love that Jesus says we're to have for one another when we freely give forgiveness to others when we are wronged. Now, if I, if I had to rank these in number of importance, I'd have put this one first. Uh, they're not ranked in any order of importance. But this, in my book, would be number one. On the cross, Jesus said, y'all remember what he said, right? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. When people see a heart that really is willing to forgive wrongs against it, they see the heart of Jesus. They see Jesus when they see us love by giving freely forgiveness. The Bible says that even the pagans love the pagans that love them. And if you don't like the word pagan, let me just say people who have no religious, the nuns of our day, right? Even the nuns of our day, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, right? No religious affiliation, none, right? So even they love people who love them. He says, you guys are different. You follow me, you're different. You're to love even your enemies. And that means we're to forgive people even, even I think when people... When people aren't asking for it, we're to give forgiveness unconditionally. I, I think we, we think that we should only give forgiveness when people grovel at our feet and ask us for it, right? But that's not how Jesus lived. Jesus gave forgiveness to people who didn't even know they needed forgiveness. He just readily forgave them. Now, can I tell you what forgiveness looks like? Uh, In my mind, anyway, forgiveness looks like not closing down on people. That's how I like to picture forgiveness in my mind. Forgiveness means not closing down on people. And you say, what do you mean by closing down? Well, I mean withdrawing from them, closing up to them, not talking to them, walking away from them, avoiding them, right? To me, that's what non-forgiveness looks like. I close down to you. I, I tell you, that's not... Loving one another is not closing down on each other, but forgiving one another, whether the other person wants it, asks for it, even knows they they need it. Because, listen, because it's our nature to be forgiving. This is a a little story. I I don't know. It's it's not true. It can't be true. But but it's kind of illustrated. Let me read it. A man was sitting by the river one morning when he saw a scorpion floating on the water. When the scorpion drifted near the old man, he reached out to rescue it, but he got stung by the scorpion. A minute later, he tried again, but got stung again, the bite swelling in his hand painfully, giving him much pain. A passerby saw him, and he yelled at the old man. He said, hey, old man, what's wrong with you? Only a fool would risk his life for the sake of an ugly, evil creature like that. Don't you know that you could kill yourself trying to save that ungrateful scorpion? The old man calmly replied, My friend, just because the scorpion's nature is to sting, that does not change my nature to save. Now, now, and Grant, I know that story can't be true, but the point it makes is this, that there's something in us that's willing to forgive because Jesus lives in us, because we have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We possess God. He lives within us, and His willingness to forgive you know, it, it lives in us, and it is our nature to forgive. At least that's what it should be. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. Here, here's what forgiveness, uh, I think, looks like practically. Um, it's refusing to close down my life, refusing to close my spirit. I already talked about that. 
But it's also this. It's taking the initiative to keep the relationship alive and express that forgiveness by treating them with kindness. Let me, let me, just, let me keep this to the context of us as a family, okay? And I know we have guests, and I'm really glad you're here. And you're probably family just from... Uh, like our sibling family, right? The people of God are all the family of God. But in our, in our family here at Bacon's Castle, this is what forgiveness of one another looks like. It means that you don't close down on one another, but you also take the, you take the responsibility of, of trying to keep the channels open with, with taking the initiative of talking and treating with kindness. It means never seeking to get even or injuring the other person because they've injured you. It means never giving up, never giving up and, and never, never, bringing, never bringing it back up, you know, over and over again. I mean, we hear this joke, don't we, in marriage about how, how wives and, and husbands too, we, we bring up the past over and over again. We say we thought we were forgiven that, but we just keep bringing it up. Well, we do that in our relationships that are outside of marriage as well. Forgiveness means not bringing those things up over and over again. Now, can I say something here? And this is just not just about us, but it's about believers in general. You know, sometimes we are so slow to forgive. We are so slow to get over past hurts. And so we close people out. I mean, I've had people tell me, I mean, and, and, and they, weren't, they weren't even ashamed of this. Yeah, if I see so-and-so walking down this aisle, I walk over there so I don't have to face them. Such things ought not be. Such things ought not be. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Carry one another's hurts and burdens and be willing to forgive when others wrong you. Sometimes people don't even know they've wronged us. Can I ask you a question? Who do you need to forgive? As I've been talking, who's just come up in your heart? Because chances are somebody came up in your heart that you're just like, yeah, I can't do that to that person. I mean, if, somebody, if God brought somebody up to you you need to forgive that person. Number three, when we seek forgiveness from us, we, we demonstrate love when we seek forgiveness from others when we have wronged them. Now, this is the, this is the opposite of that, of that piece, right? And here's what Jesus, he tells a story of a guy worshiping and the guy realizes that somebody has something against him, that he's done something wrong. You remember the story, right? What does Jesus say? He says, leave it there and go, go, go to that guy, right? So here's the deal. You know, if you've wronged somebody, Jesus would prefer you to leave right now and go fix it and then come back. Then stay here. It's what he seemed to say in that story, right? If you're here worshiping and you know you've offended someone, then, then he says, man, leave your gift at the altar and you go and you fix that. So, you know, if, if, here's the deal. Loving, demonstrating loves means that when I have wronged someone, I am willing to fix it. I am willing to own it. I'm willing to go and seek forgiveness. Love forgives, but love also seeks to forgive when I, seeks forgiveness when I have been the wrong, one who's wrong. Can we just say, let's be honest, everybody. It's hard to own up to our mistakes. It's hard to humble ourselves. It's hard to go and say, hey, listen, I messed up. I really sinned against you. And especially we, we want to try to, we want to try to justify that, don't we? We want, we try to explain why I did what I did. This, you know, no. We need to go and seek forgiveness. Here, here's some thoughts on that. Go in person. If, if God ever convicts you that you have wronged someone or you find out someone has something against you, you go to that person in person. Take the initiative. Don't make excuses. Own up to your wrong. In other words, don't say, hey, please forgive me, but the reason I did that was this. That never works. 
Number three, don't seek to convince them of their wrong. I mean, I hear this all the time. I was wrong, but you know, you were really wrong too. If you're going to go and seek forgiveness for your wrong, don't worry about what the other person did. Let God take care of them. Don't, don't try to go and say, I, I want to come and say I'm wrong, but you were wrong too. You just go and say, I was wrong. Because really, it, you know, your wrong is never justified because of their wrong. So what if they were wrong, you know? Number four, make the relationship the priority. Again, I, I mean, there are times when we need to stand by rightness, but there are a lot of times when we don't. And the relationship is more important than being right in this, in this argument if the person you know, somehow I got heated, I got, okay, here's an example. Okay, you're in an argument with someone, you start talking to someone, and you get angry, and you get heated, and you start speaking. You're speaking true. What you're saying is true, but you're doing it out of anger or whatever. You know, you need to go and seek forgiveness for that way you did it, and you don't need to talk about anything else about how right you were. The relationship is what matters. And number five, ask God for the humility of heart to do this. Because I'm telling you, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you find it hard to go and own up your, to your junk when you've been wrong? Ask God for a humble heart that says, Lord, I, just, I want to be someone who's quick to own up my mistakes and to seek forgiveness when I'm wrong. And I have a story I want to read you. It's rather lengthy, but stories are easy for you to listen to, so you'll enjoy the story. Um, I just want you to listen, sit back, and uh, this is a story that illustrates those first three points. A young man cowered in the corner of a dirty, roach-infested death row cell in South Carolina prison. His body curled in a fetal position. He seemed oblivious to the filth and the stench around him. His name was Rusty, and he was sentenced to die for the murder of a Myrtle Beach woman in a crime spree that left four people dead. Police arrested 23-year-old Rusty Wellborn from Point Pleasant, West Virginia in 1979, following one of the most brutal slayings in South Carolina's history. Rusty was tried for murder and received the death penalty for his crime. Bob Allister, deputy chief of staff to the South Carolina governor, became acquainted with Rusty on death row. Now, Bob had become a Christian a year or so earlier and felt a strong call from God to minister to the state's inmates, especially those spending their last days on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed uh, he mattered to no one. The only signs of life in the cell were the roaches and uh, who scurried over everything, including Rusty. He made no effort to move or even to brush the insects away. He stared blankly at Bob as he began to talk, but did not respond. During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him of the love of Jesus that Jesus had for him and his opportunity, even on death row, to start a new life in Christ. He talked and prayed continuously, and finally Rusty began to respond to the stranger who kept invading his cell. Little by little, he opened up until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. On that day, Rusty Wellborn, a pitiful man with murder and darkness behind him and his own death closing in ahead of him, gave his heart to Jesus. When Bob returned to Rusty's cell a few days later, he found a new man. The cell was clean, and so was Rusty. He had a renewed energy and a positive outlook of life on life. McAllister continued to visit him regularly, studying the Bible and praying with him. The two men began, became close friends, and over the next five years, over the next five years, in fact, McAllister said that Rusty grew into the son he never had, and as for Rusty, he, called, he started taking to calling McAllister Pap. 
Bob learned that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia had been anything but almost heaven. His family was destitute. Rusty was neglected and abused as a youngster. School was an ordeal both for him and his teachers. Throughout his junior years, he wore the same two pair of pants and the same two ragged shirts. Out of the same frustration and lack of adult guidance, Rusty quit school in the ninth grade, a decision that would that was to be just the beginning of his troubles. His teenage years were full of turmoil as he was kicked out of home after home, many times countlessly running away from them. He spent the better part of his youth living under bridges and in public restrooms. Bob taught Rusty the Bible, but Rusty was the teacher when it came to love and forgiveness. The young man had never known real love And he was amazed and thrilled about the love of God, as shown to him, obviously, I'm adding this, but shown to him through by Bob. He never ceased to be surprised that other people could actually love someone like him through Jesus. Rusty's childlike enthusiasm was a breath of fresh air to Bob, who who came to realize how much he had taken for granted, especially with regard to the love of his family and friends. In time, Rusty became extremely bothered by the devastating pain he had caused the family and friends of his victims. Knowing that God had forgiven him, he desperately wanted the forgiveness of those who he had wronged. And then a moment, a most significant thing happened. The brother of the woman Rusty had murdered became a Christian. And God dealt with him for two years about his need to forgive his sister's killer. Finally, he wrote Rusty a letter that offered not only forgiveness, but love in Christ. Not long before his scheduled execution, this brother and his wife came to visit Rusty. Bob was present when the two men met and tearfully embraced like long-lost brothers finally reunited. Rusty's senseless crime 10 years earlier had constructed an enormous barrier between himself and that brother. The love of Jesus obliterated that barrier and enabled both men to realize that because of him, they truly were brothers reunited on that day. It was a lesson Bob would not forget. Not only did Rusty teach Bob McAllister how to love and to forgive, he also taught him a powerful lesson about how to die. As the appointed day approached, Rusty exhibited a calm assurance like Bob had never seen on his final day, with only hours remaining before his 1 o'clock, 1 a.m. execution, Rusty asked McAllister to read to him from the Bible. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat up on the side of the cot and said, You know, the only thing I ever wanted was a home, Pap, and now I'm going to get one. Bob continued his reading, and after a few minutes, Rusty grew very still. Thinking he had fallen asleep, Bob placed a blanket over him and closed the Bible. As he turned to leave, he felt a strong compulsion to lean over and kiss Rusty on the forehead. A short time later, Rusty Wellburn was uh, executed for murder. A woman assisting Rusty in the last moments shared this postscript to his story. As he was being prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, What a shame that a man has got to wait till his last night alive to be kissed in and tucked in for the very first time. Number four. We demonstrate love when we refuse to gossip or speak negatively about others. There's so much in the Bible about gossip. It's listed as the seven things that God hates the most. In Romans 1.29, it's the evidence of a depraved mind. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul puts it among the list of, of how men are going to be in, uh, in last days. He said they'll be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. Proverbs 20.19 says, don't even hang around a person who's a gossip. At the core of gossip is a desire to put people down. 
It's at the core of gossip is this desire to speak the worst and believe the worst about people. Love is just the opposite of that. And that's why love doesn't gossip. And that's why love doesn't speak negatively because our desire should not be to put people down, but it should be to build them up. It's not, and why do we gossip? We put them down so somehow we lift ourselves up. Listen, when you gossip and speak negatively against people, you, you're, you're not lifting yourself just lowering yourself. So here's what it means practically. It means if we love, we will always choose to believe the very best in people, even when the evidence seems to point elsewhere until it's a certainty. And even when it is a certainty, that doesn't give me license to, to run people down with my words. Loving others means never passing on to anyone anything negative or critical about another person just for, just for passing it on to make that person look bad. That means our spouse, our children, our friends, our neighbors. If you need a sounding board because somebody has hurt you and you need a sounding board, here's what I'd say to you. Vent to God. Vent to God. To love means to refuse even to listen to negative, critical things about others. Stop it at the beginning. And I, I, I can't say that I would want to do this, but John Morgan at Sagemont Church, this is what they ask everyone to do. Someone asks you to do it. If you happen to be somewhere and someone starts to say something negative about someone, why don't you just do this? Hey, let's pray. And then bow your head and start praying for whoever they were talking about. In other words, cut it off with prayer. We shouldn't even be listened. Repent when you mess up because we're all going to mess up. We're all going to gossip. We're all, the tongue, what does James say about the tongue? It's the hardest thing to control, right? So when you mess up, repent quickly. Repent quickly. Going further, can I make a suggestion to us that we not only stop talking negatively because that's what love does. It doesn't talk negatively. Love talks positively. So let me encourage you to, to speak positively about one another. So when, when, you, when, when, when you hear something good about someone, pass it on. Share it with someone. Share it with 10 people. I mean, you know what they say, that we, that we share something negative about someone seven times and we share something positive only twice? Why is that? Here, let's reverse that. Let's, let's, let's share no negative, zero. Let's share positive things with seven people. You know, I have it in my notes. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Over the years, I, I have just found that it's so easy for us to believe the, the worst about people so easily. I mean, we just believe the worst. Let's not believe the worst. Let's believe the best. Believe their motives are different. Why do we have to believe somebody's motives are nefarious? Why can't we at least just say, hey, their motives are neutral? Their reason for that wasn't, uh, wasn't negative. And can I say this politically? Hey guys, let me tell you something. We need to be different than what you see on Facebook. And I know some of you aren't on Facebook and, and that's wonderful. But for those of us that are on Facebook, I mean, speak about issues, but quit running people down who disagree with you. It's, it's not helpful. It's not Christ-like. It really isn't. And you say, well, Jimmy, what about the Pharisees and all? Well, you point to Jesus in his exchange with the Pharisees, but, but I'm telling you, running people down who are politically different than you, attacking the person, that is wrong. Deal with issues, but don't deal with the people themselves. Let God deal with them. And finally, we demonstrate love. I said there's five. 
We demonstrate love when we choose to spend time together. I mean, love is, there's no such thing as a believer who is called to be a lone ranger or called to uh, be a hermit. That's not, that's not what God's called us to. He's called us to do life together. Now, we've said that this gathering on Sunday morning is one of the expectations we have for ourselves as a family, that we're going we're gonna to prioritize this, this Sunday morning meeting. And I'm glad you're here this morning. But, but can I say something that this is not enough? We, we, we have to have a group of people that, that we walk through life with that know us and have freedom to speak into our life. Have freedom to speak in and say, Jimmy, you're screwing up. Jimmy, you're, you're messing up. Jimmy, you shouldn't have said that. Jimmy, you know, and, and not just negative. They have the freedom to speak into my life positive things too. Wow, Jimmy, you really did good there, you know? But you've got to have a group of people that, that you walk through this Christian life with who have that sort of freedom. And so in the book of Acts, it says they met in the temple, but it also says they met house to house. And so you need to develop that group of people that you walk through life with that, you know, that, are, that, are, that can speak into your life. Love pays the price to develop those relationships. And the price, you know what the price is, don't you? Do you know what the price of relationships is? Time. Very good. It's time. That's right. You don't build relationships on Facebook. You build relationships with time, not with little quippy statements. You build it by spending time together and doing life together and, 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 just, and having a friendship that lets people pour into you. Now, here's a couple of practical things that I want to say about that. Is one is I can't be friends with everyone. You can't be friends with everyone. We're not expected to be friends with everyone. All right? There's not enough days in, 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 the, in the month or the year to do that. Not everyone's going to even enjoy spending time with me because they don't like me. I mean, they don't like how I am or whatever, you know? So not everybody's going to like everybody, and that's okay, right? But you find those people that you can do life with. Jesus invested in 12. And you, you find those people, and, and again, I'm not talking about just being friends. I am talking about being friends, but I'm talking about having a real spiritual commitment to one another, where you speak into each other's lives, and, you, and you're willing to help correct one another. If you're not involved with a, with a group of Christians like that, I, I think you're missing out. Personally, I think you're missing out on what it means to love like Jesus wanted us to, to love. It's too superficial if you don't have a group of people that, that, you, that own you and you own them as folks that you're pouring into. So I'm, I'm done with the meat of my talk. I haven't looked at my watch. I'm sure I'm over. Thank you for your patience. This morning, I want to invite you to truly choose love. That's the invitation. Now listen, please don't, please don't be wrapping up. Stay with me. I mean, I have been praying about this morning. I want to invite you to truly choose love, to make sure that everyone knows that you belong to Jesus because they see how you practically and obviously and consistently love others in the church and outside the church. And some of us this morning need to repent we need to repent because if we're honest, what people see in us is not forgiveness, but unforgiveness. What they see in us is not gentleness, but bitterness. What they see in us is someone who always has to be right, who always has to have their way. Or what they see in us is a spirit of always thinking and believing the worst in people, who are always quick to gossip and share negative things about other people. 
Or maybe they see a spirit of aloofness or apathy. Love does not withdraw. Love seeks out others. It seeks out relationships. It, it makes itself vulnerable. This morning, Jill shared with us in the prayer time that the motto for the school that Josiah went to was to be rather than to seem. I wrote that down. To be rather than to seem. So my invitation this morning is to challenge you to be and to seem the same. In other words, to be this person who is loving others like Jesus loved them. And it's practically seen in the five things and more that I just shared with you. Now, so in just a moment, I'm going to give us an invitation. And I, I really, it's an invitation to respond this morning. Okay, so just be aware of that. I'm going to give you an invitation to come and say to the Lord, Lord, I am not a loving person. I, my love is not what it ought to be. Lord, I want you to change me. But here's the thing that I want you to see. And this, I talked about this at the very beginning of this talk. Listen to what I'm saying now. It, it, you cannot love like I'm calling you to love unless Jesus is in you. It's not your nature. Your nature is selfishness. Your nature is to be all about yourself. It's not about loving others. And the only person who can change your nature is Jesus. And some of you need Jesus because you need to experience the love that Jesus has for you. You've never had anybody love you unconditionally, forgive you, seek you out. Someone who doesn't judge you, who's never going to leave you. Just like Rusty. Just like Rusty in my story. Maybe, maybe you're not rusty and you're not in some roach-infested jail cell, not caring about anything, but listen, you've never had anybody love you like Jesus. I'm inviting you this morning to experience the love of Jesus and come to him. And then having Jesus in our hearts, Lord, I want to invite you to, to put on the new man, to allow the Holy Spirit to just help you love others. So I'm inviting you this morning to let Jesus love you, and then let Jesus love others through you. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.